Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto six years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the July 6th, 2021 episode of Unchained. My book, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze, is available for pre-order. You can also purchase it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or bookshop.org, or any of your other favorite bookstores. Go to bit.ly slash cryptopians, that's B-I-T dot L-Y slash C-R-Y-P-T-O-P-I-A-N-S to pre-order today. Tezos is smart money that's redefining what it means to hold and exchange value in a digitally connected world. Discover how people are reimagining the world around you on Tezos. Conjure brings any asset you want onto Ethereum by allowing for users to create synthetic assets which track other markets. With zero interest loans and unlimited assets, it's helping DeFi to consume TradFi. That's C-O-N-J-U-R-E dot finance. Check it out. The Crypto.com app lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% interest on your Bitcoin and 14% interest on your stablecoins, paid weekly. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. The link is in the description. Today's guest is Kevin Zhang, Vice President of Business Development at Foundry. Welcome, Kevin. Thanks for having me on, Laura. Before we get into all the Bitcoin mining news, and there is a lot of it, why don't we just start with your background? Because you ha- you're you kind of like a crypto OG. Tell us how you got into Bitcoin. Sure thing. Uh, so like many others, I'd heard about Bitcoin quite early uh, back in college in 2011. And I initially wrote it off. It's, oh, it's magic internet money. Nothing just goes to thousands. It's not really backed by anything. And I kind of disregarded it for several years. But then it came back to me when I was... Um, was quite bored of my corporate finance job at Ford. And it was actually through some of my video gaming friends on World of Warcraft. Uh, they introduced me to Bitcoin mining. And that particular friend uh, that introduced me to it, he was childhood friends with Roger Beer. Um, and when he told me that he, had, he was building a mining operation out in California, and he was looking for someone that had a background in finance, could speak Chinese, to work with the manufacturers, and a passion for the technology, I was sold right away. So I packed my bags and flew out to California and kind of pursue this crazy Bitcoin mining endeavor. I love that story. And um, you tell us where you worked there because I think that you worked at some companies that were associated with Roger Veer. Oh, absolutely. Uh, so prior uh, to me joining Roger at Bitcoin.com, I, uh, I, I was working on several different large scale projects in North America. So I spoke about there was this project out in California. Well, very quickly, we learned in late 2014 how difficult it is to, uh, to operate and maintain a mining facility in very hot climates like California. Uh, we also needed cheaper electricity and more scale. So we eventually refounded the business up in Montana. Uh, and that became known as Project Spokane, which eventually got acquired by a group called Hyperblock. 
2016, that was uh, what we claim was one of the largest facilities, if not the largest uh, in North America at the time. Uh, eventually, I did join Roger over at Bitcoin.com, helped him with uh, his Bitcoin mining operations and uh, bringing business to Bitcoin.com's mining pool. Uh, eventually, I did find my way back into the U.S. Um, I uh, worked on a project called Greenwich Generation, uh, which was a very large scale natural gas power plant and the first fully compliant uh, behind the meter mining operation for Bitcoin at a power plant. Uh, I guess that caught the attention of those at DCG and uh I joined Mike and Barry here at uh, Foundry Digital. All right. Yeah. And we'll dive a little bit more into some of the details there later on. So tell us, what does Foundry do and what do you do there? Sure. Uh, so I'm the Vice President of Business Operations or Business Development here at Foundry. Um, Foundry is a decentralized infrastructure play for digital currency group. Um, what that means is we provide services in the infrastructure layer for both proof of work and proof of stake. But my guess is for today, we're only going to focus on the Bitcoin mining side. All right. So why did DCG decide to start Foundry? Because they had been industry players for quite a while before doing so. Yeah, that's a great question. Even prior to me joining DCG, when I was at Greenwich, uh, we were looking to raise capital and partner up with many of the uh, known staples um, within the crypto community and investors. And there was this uh, saying that was being passed around a lot of the more institutional investors, they were saying friends don't let friends mine. And clearly there, there was something that was missing there. And what it all came down to was we realized there was uh, the Bitcoin mining space needed cleaning up. Uh, for lack of a better term, it really was quite a shit show, especially for Westerners trying to break into the market. It certainly lacks a lot of transparency. It's very opaque. Uh, lead times for deliveries can be very long. It's a very risky and capital intensive endeavor. And most people have typically shied away from it. And DCG, our mission is to build a better financial system uh, for the future. And part of that is bringing in institutional adopters, right? And to get that institutional adoption, you got to make industry more mature, bring more transparency and credibility. Uh, so we realized that we have an ability and an opportunity to leverage our balance sheet, our capital, and our reputation to break into the mining ecosystem and really clean up the ecosystem for other investors uh, to kind of follow the path that we're leading. A clear example would be, um, uh, let's say, with both our subsidiaries, sister companies at Grayscale and Genesis, they're dealing with a lot of flow and a lot of coins that they're custodying or that um, are from customers that are looking to generate yield and returns on the crypto that we're managing for them. Well, when you're dealing with billions of dollars of digital assets, it's very difficult to trust, let's say, two college students in a dorm room for their staking service. Uh, and we realized that as a space needs to be more mature and institutionalized, we should first be able to serve our own sister companies and portfolio companies. And if we can provide an institutional product internally, then we can offer it to others. And the same is true with mining, right? I mentioned before that there's all these risks with not only procuring the miners, uh, but also building your facility, uh, knowing who to invest in, what, uh, what collocation and sites to work with. And we wanted to bring our credibility experience uh, to the table. And just to kind of draw out the issues there, it's that when you talk about the delay and, um, you know, purchasing miners, it could be that you calculate what your cost would be and, um, figure out whether or not you could be profitable based on the price at any given time and the difficulty, your electricity costs. But as time goes by, those factors start to change a little bit. And then that could affect whether or not you could have a profitable operation by the time the miners arrive. Is that? 
kind of what some of the issues are there? Yeah, absolutely. So I think one of the most critical things that a lot of investors and uh, market participants miss when they enter into the mining space is timing, right? You have to actually be quite counter-cyclical, uh, where usually if you're buying and you're purchasing miners or building your sites, when the economics are very profitable, uh, usually it's too frothy. And by the time you actually get your operations online, units are delivered, they're very long lead times, right? We're talking six to nine months, if not a year. Uh, so by the time you actually get your equipment and everything powered on, the economics are no longer there because the rest of the competition has either caught up or the markets have themselves corrected. All right. Yeah. So now that we understand a little bit what the mindset is of a mine operator, let's now talk about the news coming out of China regarding mining. Um, obviously, there's been this ban that's been in the news. Um, why don't you tell us what happened? Sure. Uh, so this may be a quite long tangent, but I think there's a lot of things to cover, right? The way I look at um, how China is cracking down on mining and, and crypto regulations in general, it's not focused only on mining. The CCP and China as a country, their main focus is uh, social stability and maintaining their authority and their the status quo by making sure everything is under control. And that is oftentimes challenged when crypto is in everyone's faces, everyone's fervent investor, right? And it's on top of everyone's mind. And I vividly recall that in uh, the middle of, I believe it was May, I had friends texting me from China. They were like, hey, Grayscale, DCG, and Barry, they're on CCTV too, right? Uh, so when you have a state-ran news channel that's broadcasting on cryptocurrencies, and they spent a whole 30-minute segment covering doggy coins and the crazy returns you can get on those coins, um, you know that, okay, the Chinese government's had to respond in some way with their own news channels are broadcasting billions of people. So a lot of this is focused around financial risk and control, right? Uh, and this has been ongoing, and it's been a pattern of cyclical for some time now. We saw the same thing in 2017 uh, when the, there was the ICO boom and Bitcoin was pushing 20000 Almost immediately after the state ran CCTV news channels are covering all these crazy returns from ICO investments, a few weeks later, the Chinese government came and cracked down on the exchanges at the time. So many of the staple exchanges like Huobi, Binance, OKX, they, they moved overseas. And this time around, it's very, very similar. The one thing that I think is different is we also have the focus and the spotlight on the 100th year anniversary of the CCP. Uh, that, that was just yesterday, right? So I think they want to demonstrate even more control over what's going on in space. And the one thing that's different than three years ago was there's a lot more uh, of an effort on the environmental impact of Bitcoin mining and ESG efforts from the central party. So uh, Bitcoin mining was more uh, in the crosshairs this time around, and they did crack down, right? Everyone's talked about the same uh, narrative that, oh, China's banned mining, China kills Bitcoin again, this and that. But this time around, they actually did enforce and crack down quite hard on these different provinces. And we can go through the whole timeline and the cascade of the events if you'd like. Yeah, why don't we do that? And also, when you do that, if you could just explain a little bit what the relationship is between um, uh, power plants in China and miners, because from what I understand, this 100-year anniversary really did affect even how the power plants themselves you know, how willing they were to um, enforce these crackdowns. So yeah, let's go into the timeline. 
Yeah, absolutely. So we won't go all the way back to 2017. We'll just start <laughs> with this year, right? Uh, so I think the first major news that hit uh, this time around was March 1st. So March 1st, Inner Mongolia announced that they were cracking down on Bitcoin mining. Uh, they enlisted um, several large facilities that they were going to inspect uh, and uh, uh, further offer uh, more stringent regulation for operating their uh, Bitcoin mining farms. What ended up happening by the end of the month was that further stringent regulation turned into, oh, we're going to suspend mining activities in Inner Mongolia. So at the time, most people were suspecting, oh, this is more of an environmentally driven uh, type effort from the central government uh, because Inner Mongolia is largely uh, backed by coal-fired plants that supply the Bitcoin miners. And uh, before I talk about some of the other events that happened, I think it's also important to illustrate that in China, there usually is an annual migration of miners. Uh, so during what we call wet season, anywhere from mid-June to late June, when there's a lot of rain, oftentimes miners will, will send their uh, equipment and their ASIC uh, servers down to Sichuan, where there's an abundance of hydropower. And then by the time November rolls around, they'll return their miners to the northern regions or the coal-fired regions like Xinjiang or Inner Mongolia. Um, and in this case, the miners are starting off in their position in Inner Mongolia waiting to be sent to Sichuan. So a lot of that got accelerated. And even then, during this period of March and April, uh, most people, they were still uh, not fully confident the Chinese government would actually come in, step in, and, and actually shut down some of these operations. So there were those that actually stayed behind. Um, what ended up happening is by the end of April, the operation that they stayed behind, they were all shut down. Uh, they were sealed with police tape. And the transformers and a lot of substations, they had padlocks on them. So mining operations did cease for good at the end of April, at least this time around. Um, so one of the largest GPU mining farms that I'm friends with uh, over in uh, near Mongolia, they had all their equipment stuck and they couldn't even access them because they went with the bet that maybe the Chinese government isn't actually going to regulate this or crack down so hard. Unfortunately, um, they were they're quite serious this time around. Oh, so that but, was April. but wait, when you say that that you know their um, equipment was padlocked and everything, why wouldn't they be allowed to ship it out where they want? Like it, as long as they're just not in Inner Mongolia. Yeah, so I think one of the things I may have glossed over was um, the tone of the crackdowns and the regulations from the beginning of March towards the end of March changed drastically. So initially in March they were like, we're going to take a look at this and offer. Guidelines for how to maintain Bitcoin mining uh, and be compliant. But towards the end of the month, March, the tone had changed to, okay, we want to cease all Bitcoin mining activities. Um, so they've given the deadline for that by the end of April, um, they first, they want everything out. And that's why the people that decide to stay behind and kind of go with the gamble or risk that maybe they aren't going to actually inspect the crackdown that hard, they were kind of caught with their pants down there. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Is that mining equipment going to be destroyed or confiscated or something? Or So there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of conspiracy theories, this or that, that the state's going to confiscate this all and the Chinese government is going to shadow mine and do this or that. <laughs> but no, it's, it's, it's all. So there, there actually been some videos that have been circulating on the internet or some pictures over the years, but they actually do confiscate it into their uh, police departments and depots. And it's all just sitting there collecting dust. Oh boy. Yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. So that's what a, a lot waste. of, yeah, quite a lot. Yeah. Okay. All right. So keep going with the timeline. All right. So, um, 
what also happened during the middle of April was Bitcoin also pushed all-time highs, right? So not only did Bitcoin price push all-time highs in the mid-60,000s 60, uh, 60, or so, so did uh, Bitcoin mining hash rate. So Bitcoin mining hash rate, it was averaging around 170x hashes, maybe even 180x hashes towards that time period. So the, the Inner Mongolia crackdown hadn't really affected the global mining network too much. The people that did move out, which was the majority of miners up there, um, they were able to find other open capacity available in China or abroad. Um, and then uh, things started shifting and changing uh, come uh, May 13th and May 15th, towards the middle of May, uh, when I mentioned before that story of the CCTV2 uh, broadcast. Um, that was when Bitcoin had really, in crypto in general, uh, had really hit mainstream news and it was all over the state broadcast media, this and that. And then almost immediately afterwards, um, this was, I believe, May 21st or so, uh, the state council um, of the People's Republic of China, they made an announcement that they want to crack down hard on trading and mining. But this was only just a couple of sentences. So they wasn't focused only on mining, but they wanted to crack down all crypto, uh, cryptocurrency activity. And they did say, we want to regulate trading and mining. During that time, Bitcoin price had also been correcting. It had already fallen from 64,000 down to the low 40s or so. And the hash rate had, had also been dropping um, and it recorrected down to 150x hashes. Uh, and around that time, this is kind of where it started the um, sharp decline of hash rate as we entered uh, the month of June. So June 2nd, at the very start of June 2nd, a lot of the miners already started sending their miners over to Sichuan. So I talked about how miners will relocate their miners, take advantage of lower rates uh, and abundance of electrical capacity that's stranded at the hydro dams in Sichuan. So a lot of the mining equipment had, was actually migrating from northern China and other coal-fired areas uh, to Sichuan. And a lot of the power plants and miners, um, they're worried that, oh, if China, um, during the May 21st announcement, if they're going to be taking a harder stance on Bitcoin mining and trading, uh, how are they going to regulate us here in Sichuan, right? So they proactively set up uh, a council and a meeting to discuss how to do fully compliant mining uh, within Sichuan. And then they wanted to weigh the pros and cons of should they permit uh, mining at a provincial level. So what came out of that was, okay, we're continuing mining and we're going to see what's going to happen at the state level. That was a go signal for a lot of miners to kind of send their equipment to Sichuan if they hadn't already. But then on June 9th, uh, we also had announcements come from Xinjiang and Qinghai uh, that they were also going to be suspending mining activities. That forced the hand of all the other miners that hadn't moved to Sichuan. So essentially at this point, most miners were moving their equipment to Sichuan, China, in hopes that the hydropower would be sustained uh, and would be allowed for uh, Bitcoin mining. Uh, and then the big bombshell came on June 18th. And this is when Sichuan made the announcement uh, that they were going to suspend all Bitcoin mining activities. Uh, they initially called out 26 of the largest power plants and the mining facilities. But everyone else, they essentially shuttered and they were like, well, if these were the same plants that participated in the June 2nd meeting, they proactively set the guidelines for how they were going to be compliant and meet the regulations that were set forth in front of them. Um, and they were told to shut off. Many of the other, even smaller, medium-sized mines, they decided to shut, uh, shut off their operations as well. So this is the point where we saw uh, global hash rate start spiraling downwards. And we can take ourselves to essentially present day. 
towards the roughly the end of June, where the last province, which is Yunnan, they also followed suit with banning any remaining mining activities, which essentially took off 90% of the hash rate capacity uh, that was being mined in China. And uh, we can see that global hash rate now from an all-time high of 170, 180 exahash averages back in uh, April, May, that those have now plummeted down to 90 exahashes or so. Wow, that's incredible. And um, so at this moment, it just feels like we're in this transition period and we haven't really seen a ton of the miners come online yet in other places. But as far as you know, at this moment, where are miners looking or what are the factors that they're considering as they decide where to set up shop? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's the question on everyone's mind, right? Um, and the tough answer is that um, there really isn't that much space to plug in this much capacity into it, right? Uh, when essentially it's overnight, right? Over the course of one or two months, uh, you had over 50% of the entire network go offline you aren't going to be able to build that capacity so quickly. Uh, we talked about before that oftentimes projects take six to nine months. That's after you've gotten the green light and approval to begin construction in some of the Western, more established countries, right? So the quickest turnaround time uh, for money operations to be built up in the countries and jurisdictions most similar to China, the people that benefited the most was Central Asia. So the most popular country for a lot of these Chinese miners to migrate to was Kazakhstan. But no different than everyone else, Kazakhstan, they can only support so much capacity as well. So much of the network has actually remained dormant and offline since these crackdowns. And we're seeing that with this large difficulty drop, the largest ever that's going to take place at the very end of uh, today, Friday, uh, July 2nd. Yeah. And so when you say that, um, you know, there there isn't this amount of capacity elsewhere, when you say it, it's just because they tend to look for excess capacity, is that why? It's not just excess capacity, it's open capacity, right? So a little bit of background in the mining infrastructure needs to first be built uh, before miners can be plugged in. You have to step down a tremendous amount of electricity, usually at the sub substation level, so you have high voltage electricity. Then you have to step it down to medium voltage, and that medium voltage then needs to be brought down to low voltage, and you have all these different layers of electrical equipment, permitting, and uh, sourcing of equipment and infrastructure that takes a very long time. A very interesting kind of dynamic that's being playing, uh, it's playing out in front of us is there's major uh, bottlenecks supply crunches on not just the Bitcoin mining uh, equipment ecosystem, but all over the world. Electrical transformers are at a premium, and there, there's a massive shortage here too. All raw materials have spiked in price. So for all those Reddit traders, everyone else, they know exactly what we're talking about. Uh, copper prices have shot to the roof, lumber, et cetera, right? So a lot of these materials that go into electrical infrastructure or into the building of these facilities, those are shot up not only in cost, but in lead time. And all of that is because of the pandemic? A lot of it's largely pandemic-driven, right? Oh, it's, yeah, quite the, quite the storm. One other thing that I saw that you tweeted, which was really interesting to me, was you said a lot of the mining equipment is not up to code for Western countries. So what do you mean yeah. by that? Right. Uh, so we also talked about, um, so you have all this equipment that's being shut off in China, lots of infrastructure. And actually, let me take a step back. Uh, one of the ways we can tell that the Chinese government's much more, quote unquote, serious about this crackdown suspension of mining 
is that many of the power plants that were fully compliant and got the green light to go proceed with mining from the provincial governments, they're now being told to not only uproot and take out their Bitcoin miners, they're being told to uproot and uh, take out what's for all, all their electrical infrastructure they've installed. So all these things that uh, have taken months to source, they're being told to, they need to remove it from the premises. And what I meant by some of this equipment won't translate so well into the West is one of the advantages that China and the Kazakhstan's of the world has had over the U.S. has been that they don't have as stringent electrical code as we do uh, over in Western countries. Um, in Europe, you have C-certified type electrical equipment. And in the West, you have UL-listed uh, equipment that you have to run. That's a fancy way of saying you got to build your electrical equipment with higher code and uh, regulations and with uh, better, more stable materials. So the aluminum uh, that's being used in Chinese transformers, that's often required to be copper uh, over here in, the, in North America. That equipment won't be allowed to be turned on here in the States. So you have all this equipment that now is no longer uh, able to be translated and used again in the West. But they sometimes can be sent to countries in, say, Central Asia, where that's much more similar to China. Okay. Yeah. And one other factor uh, for those who are looking to relocate in the U.S., are the U.S.-China tariffs also a part of this calculation? Yeah, absolutely. So that that tariff is still there, guys. <laughs> so for those who are looking to purchase used miners, oftentimes it doesn't make sense to send them directly or to run them in the U.S. There are like proactive stances that the manufacturers have taken. Right. So we're, right now we're obviously focusing on the dormant miners that were taken offline in China. But the manufacturers have done a great job of also spinning up uh, assembly and manufacturing sources uh, in Malaysia and Thailand and other parts of the world. So uh, most of the U.S. mining participants, they are actually purchasing directly from the manufacturers from these overseas uh, manufacturing sites where the tariff doesn't apply to them. But most of these used miners... Um, they still have a tariff because they're mining in China and they're produced in Shenzhen, right? So that's another reason why a lot of these miners are going to the Central Asia groups and even Canada. So the, the tariffs are only applied to the U.S. and China. So Canadians have benefited a lot from this, as well as uh, other non-American countries. So what's your take on what this ban means for Bitcoin? And 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 just to make clear, so, I mean, it sounds like you're saying you think this will be permanent. Do Chinese miners think at all that maybe like, you know, in a year or two, they can kind of turn the lights on again or? Yeah, um, that's a good question. It's, it's also another question that's on everyone's mind. And there are those in China that think that um, there's this theory that maybe it's only so stringent and so severe of a crackdown because it's centered around the CCP's 100 year anniversary. Um, but a large part of this actually plays back into what I mentioned before, which is how prevalent and how much of a splash is Bitcoin and crypto at large making in the uh, in the social circles, right? If Bitcoin is pushing all-time highs again towards the end of this year, I'm quite certain that mining will still be suspended, right? The last thing they want to do is to show weakness or to show that, oh, we actually don't have much authority and that we spend mining once and it's coming back again, right? But if we look back at, say, 2017, exchanges ultimately found a way back into China. They re-registered overseas and they still targeted the same retail investors that were in China. Uh, mining, there may be similarities in that if Bitcoin 
uh, were to correct or were enter another into another bear market or um, less price action, right? Where there's less volatility and less news in the media, then perhaps Chinese government overlook it. For them, it's all about, um, I think it's about the perception and to show that they are, they're kind of in the driver's seat. They have a good handle on things and that they're limiting financial risk and controls. Yeah. One other factor I wonder is as they get rolling with their digital yuan DCP, if that will kind of um, push them to enforce the crackdown more as time goes on, because they'll kind of want the population there to interact or to transact with that system. So there's definitely, a, uh, that's a very popular narrative. Uh, and I think um, there's correlation, but I don't think there's too much causation there. And ultimately uh, it's the same thing with the environmental stance, right? Um, so the Bitcoin mining council, they, they released um, some data that shows that Bitcoin's actually largely renewable. And Darren Feinstein over at Lockcap, he's tweeting some awesome uh, data and statistics where Bitcoin mining uses just a drop in the bucket of the total power that's out there. So um, when, when people talk about the environmental impact of Bitcoin mining or they talk about uh, how it can ch- challenge a digital yuan, it's, it's very, very, very small percentages and numbers statistically against what they're competing against. So once again, I think it's more the perception and uh, the narrative around how much they're actually uh, controlling, actually contributing against the, the, the networks that they're competing against. All right. So um, I think maybe the last thing I want to ask is just what what would you say is going to be the overall significance of this ban and the migration for Bitcoin? Yeah. Um, so the overall significance is you're going to see much more decentralization across the entire network, which is great for the security and the longevity of Bitcoin, right? It's very much, it's, it's a very unfortunate for a lot of our colleagues and friends and I've heard some people say brethren and comrades, right, over in China. Um, and they are. They, they are very close friends and colleagues, right? Uh, and it sucks that they had such a sharp stance and they had to remove a lot of their uh, operations that they've been building up over the years. But uh, the rest of the world stands to benefit, right? Uh, the more decentralized and the more distributed the Bitcoin mining network becomes, the more secure it is. And I think what this will actually help accelerate is development of new technologies to support uh, mining activities in previously lower prioritized regions, right? So if you look at mining distribution maps, you'll see that much of the Southern Hemisphere doesn't have mining activities, right? And that's largely because uh, even though they had cheap electricity or access uh, to cheap renewable power, those are typically much hotter climates, right? They're close to the equator or they're more humid, right? So uh, when there was capacity available in China and there was abundant capacity in North America, people started prioritize expansions there. Uh, but now that these regions now have excess capacity, you, you touched on El Salvador earlier, these, these places stand to gain a lot, right? It's technologies that will be developed to support those regions. Typically, Bitcoin miners are, are cooled with, um, uh, with open-air solutions. But now we may look at more developments and maybe accelerated when it comes to immersion, right? So that's submerging your miner into uh, fluids into cooling your miners. And... Uh, we can see much more of that coming out in countries like El Salvador, in South America, in Australia, in Southeast Asia, uh, maybe even parts of Africa, right? I would, I'm hoping to see that much more mining spreads out to these regions because they do have dormant capacity and cheap um, electrical rates that are very conducive to Bitcoin mining. Hmm. All right. I'm going to have to ask you more about that. But one last thing I wanted to say about this significance for Bitcoin and how you said 
the hash rate would become more decentralized. I remember back in 2015 when I wrote one of my first really big articles on Bitcoin that I said one of the risks was that since more than half the hash rate was in China, that if the Chinese government ever decided they just were going to take over all the miners, then that would be a way for the Chinese government to kind of like 51% attack the network. And so now that the hash rate in China has fallen below 50%, um, I think that's uh, the first time since I've started reporting on this space that I can say, okay, well, now that's not a risk. <laughs> Absolutely. So it, it's another stress test that proves just how resilient Bitcoin is, right? Um, yes, I mean, some of the block times were maybe a little bit longer during this difficulty period. But here in the next other eight hours or so, uh, at the end of this Friday, when difficulty readjusts, block times will resume much closer back to 10-minute averages, and the network prevails and continues uh, soldiering on. So I think that's it just further uh, emphasizes um, how awesome of a technology Bitcoin mining is or Bitcoin is. Yeah, I agree. All right. So in a moment, we're going to talk more about what the drop in this hash rate means. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. With over 10 million users, Crypto.com is the easiest place to buy and sell over 90 cryptocurrencies. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. If you're a hodler, Crypto.com Earn pays industry-leading interest rates on over 30 coins, including Bitcoin, at up to 8.5% interest and up to 14% interest on your stablecoins. When it's time to spend your crypto, nothing beats the Crypto.com Visa card, which pays you up to 8% back instantly and gives you 100% rebate for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. There is no annual or monthly fees to worry about. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 when using the code LAURA, L-A-U-R-A. The link is in the description. Do you want to trade gold, currencies, or even bananas on Ethereum? Contra opens access to the global financial market for Ethereum by allowing for permissionless, user-created synthetic assets. Contra allows you to create, borrow, and trade synthetic assets which track the value for any conceivable asset, real or abstract, using any price feed you want. Asset creators are able to earn fees on every mint and scale revenue with direct use for their assets. Synths are minted by providing Ether to collateralize the asset as 0% interest loans. Contra's helping to bring TradFi to DeFi and turn Ethereum into the real global financial settlement layer. Trade synths for USD, gold, BTC, or make your own. So why not check out conjure.finance and see what's possible. Tezos lets you easily exchange smart money throughout our digital world. A self-upgradable blockchain with a proven track record, Tezos seamlessly adopts tomorrow's innovations without network disruptions today. Because of this adaptability, engineers, conservationists, entrepreneurs, collectors, game developers, and artists from around the world are building, creating, and using Tezos every day. Discover how people are reimagining the world around you on Tezos. Back to my conversation with Kevin Zhang. So as we've been discussing in the show, the Bitcoin hash rate is going to see what is likely to be its biggest drop ever today. Is that right? It's going to be definitely the biggest drop ever. <laughs> All right. So, um, so we kind of you know talked about how the network is resilient, but... Uh, still, what does this mean for the network and for all the various uh, actors and you know industry players on the network? I've tweeted out some threads about this, and I've shared some of my thoughts already. 
But now that we're getting even closer to the difficulty adjustment here in eight hours or so, um, economics are pretty much locked in, right? Um, there's only so many more blocks that are going to be solved, and we can already forecast, uh, knock on wood, unless Bitcoin <laughs> moves in very much one direction, we can kind of forecast what it's going to look like. Um, so we're looking at anywhere from a 27 to 28% difficulty drop, which will be the largest ever. But that being said, it's well within the limits. So the way the Bitcoin difficulty adjustment algorithm works, it can grow or decrease by a factor of four. So it can grow uh, significantly more or drop uh, up to 75%. This is actually well within its normal bounds and well within the network's algorithm. Um, but what we're going to see is from the market participants, so from users, they're going to be excited because block times will return back to a much more of a norm around a 10-minute average. Despite uh, difficulty dropping so much, the block times, did they go higher, right? We're looking at 13, 14-minute blocks. Um, it slows down the network somewhat and fees go up, but the network still worked, right? But people prefer more uh, normal block times, so to speak. But the people that stand to benefit the most are those that have miners plugged in, right? So when the difficulty is going to drop 28%, that's effectively a 38% increase in revenue because there's a lot less competition. Uh, and especially if you're a very competitive operator with lower costs, you're going to see even um, bigger impact on your bottom line. Uh, so for miners that do have capacity and do have their equipment already plugged in or bring more miners online, they stand, they stand to gain the most. Uh, so much so that the profitability of a miner Let's, uh, I was tweeting this out earlier, and I, I've actually just updated the numbers before our call. A miner during uh, the middle of April, when price was around 60000 or so, pushing all-time highs, uh, and back when difficulty and hash rate were also at all-time highs, uh, an S19 uh, 100-terahash miner was, was yielding and producing about $35 to $36 a day. Right? Once this difficulty adjustment takes place, that same miner uh, will be making roughly $33 a day. So it's a very, very small drop in revenue. And the Bitcoin price has almost been cut in half since then. And it's largely because the difficulty and the hash rates dropped with it. So once again, miners that have equipment plugged in, they stand to gain the most. And it's a very good time to be a miner. Yeah, and all of this is happening at the same time that we've been seeing Bitcoin gain much more uh, mainstream adoption, which has also meant that a lot more mainstream concerns have been coming to Bitcoin. And probably top of mind, there would be the environmental concerns. And just wanted to ask you, you know, in general, like at this moment in time, especially now, um, where, you know, we we're seeing hash rate move out of China, and a lot of people tend to think and I, you know, I don't know how true this is that a lot of the dirtier energy um, is the Bitcoin that's mined in China. Um, do you have a sense of whether or not Bitcoin is becoming greener uh, at this moment? Like, what do you think are the prospects that it will become greener? Yeah, so um, I have a couple of thoughts there. Uh, before I dive into that answer, I'll, I'll kind of give some context on Foundry, another reason why we entered into this space, right? Uh, part of bringing more institutional adoption, obviously, it's cleaning up the ecosystem, making it more credible and transparent. But another is kind of combating these narratives. There's two big narratives that we've been combating uh, since we were founded. The first was Bitcoin is centralized and it's controlled by China. Well, we just discussed how that's kind of solving itself from our eyes. Uh, so I won't go too much there. But we can also cover um, how we've been combating the narrative that Bitcoin's destroying our planet or going to the oceans. And 
uh, as a Bitcoin miner and as us having uh, access to many different uh, sets of data and many operations that we work closely with, the facts are actually on the Bitcoin miner side. Bitcoin is largely renewable or it's taking advantage of stranded energy that otherwise be wasted, right? And I also talked earlier before that uh, Darren Feinstein at BlockCap, he issued awesome report statistics. That's a drop in the bucket compared to the total um, uh, energy usage that's out there. And especially that's being wasted. Um, but the other thing I want to leave our listeners with is that Mike, Mike Collier, our CEO, he often says that Bitcoin is a, has a ruthless drive uh, towards cost efficiency. And some of the most cost efficient sources of power are from renewable sources, right? So Bitcoin will naturally become quote unquote greener, uh, in that the, the, the power consumption that it uses will be largely from renewables, uh, as we, um, as we trend towards those technologies. Uh, one of the things I think is often forgotten is that we can't just flip the switch off overnight and switch from quote unquote dirty energy into these renewable sources overnight. And Bitcoin mining serves as this incredible opportunity as to be the battery for a lot of these unstable grids. Uh, one of the large uh, negatives and the drawbacks for using renewable power is that it's not sustainable uh, or it's not very sustained. Uh, it's very intermittent. And having an uh, energy uh, con- uh, consumer that can stabilize and turn off or turn on and flip a switch is a very powerful synerg- synergistic uh, tool to keep to empower those technologies. And Bitcoin mining is just that. Yeah, what you're referencing there, I think, um, is the idea that was uh, posed in this white paper put out by Square and ARK Invest. Um, can you outline a little bit how that could work, about how Bitcoin mining could be a complement to renewable energy production? And how much are we seeing that, you know, actually take place now? Or, or, or you know, whether or not um, there's, there's any critical mass of projects like that in the works? Sure. So um, I can't speak about specific projects, and I'm also not an expert on the electrical side, uh, but at a very high level, uh, I talked about how uh, a lot of these renewable energies, whether it's uh, solar or wind, oftentimes uh, these are not very stable sources of power because um, oftentimes there's not someone that's going to be out there taking that power on. So oftentimes there's ramp-up time, uh, there's a need to store the electricity and the batteries that are required uh, to build out uh, the capex of these deployments to be very cost prohibitive. But if you deploy Bitcoin miners and you have another revenue source that can readily use the power and also give it back when it's longer needed or when the, when the grid and the energy markets spike and peak, uh, Bitcoin miners are the perfect solution to answer to that. They can flip on and off um, like, like a switch. Us being New Yorkians, it's very, it's very uh, front of mind for us or top of mind for us because of what happened this week where we got those alerts on our phones to conserve electricity, this and that. Like people oftentimes uh, take for granted that power doesn't just come out of thin air, right? It has to be generated and it has to be sustained over time. So I think Bitcoin miners are absolutely the solution to that problem. Uh, well, just for people who don't know, um, it was like an amber alert on on my phone. Suddenly, it just started screeching that you know I had to turn off as much energy as I energy usage as I could. And being a good citizen, I did that. Um, but I was like, oh, oh, wow, okay. Um, anyway, one other thing I wanted to ask about was earlier you you mentioned something um, that I, I'm not super familiar with, which is underwater mining, or, or I don't remember what phrase you used to describe oh, that. It's called, 
immersion cooling. Okay, yeah. So how does that work? There's several types of immersion cooling technologies. So one of the uh, biggest challenges of running a Bitcoin mining operation or running even a single Bitcoin miner is dissipating the heat. So the latest generation Bitcoin miner uses about three and a half uh, kilowatts. Uh, so you can imagine three and a half kilowatts being three microwaves condensed into a shoebox that never turn off, that constantly run. So imagine the heat that's dissipating and the amount of power it's uh, consuming, right? So the most cost-efficient way and the prevailing strategy for cooling those miners has been installing very high-frequency uh, fans to move the airflow, right? Move the airflow and dissipate the heat. But we talked about earlier before that now that there's a supply crunch and bottlenecks of capacity in those air, open-air cooled areas, and there is available uh, capacity and electricity in a southern hemisphere closer to the equator where it's hotter and it's more humid, air cooling would no longer work. So we can look at immersion technologies. Immersion technology is actually submerging your miner into dielectric fluids. At a high level, there's two different types. There's what's called a single-phase coolant, and there's also two-phase coolant. A single-phase coolant means that they're moving the fluids that you're uh, submerging your miner into and the chips and the hashboards into, and it moves the fluids, and it cools the fluids in the heat exchanger, and it uh, recirculates it. Instead of moving air, you're moving these fluids that dissipate and grab the heat off of the boards and the chips. Uh, the other methodology is two-phase. Two-phase sounds a lot fancier, it's a lot cooler, but it's also much more uh, expensive, which is it's actually taking the, the, the state that the fluids are in and changing it into gas to cool the fluid before it recirculates it into the miner. Um, so these technologies, um, they haven't been as prevalent or as proven at a large scale because they have largely not been prioritized. But as we see uh, these other regions and the need for decentralization pop back up, right? I think these technologies will see a lot more, uh, a lot more interest and a lot more growth. Okay. You know, I had um, Miami Mayor Francis Suarez on the show and he didn't seem aware that that you know the temperature in a certain location would affect whether or not you would want to mine there. But um, if I ever have him on the show again, I'll mention this to him and say, "Well, if you want to bring mining to Miami, then <laughs> think this is the way." Um, well, so speaking of mining in North America, there's been a lot of talk in recent years about mo- more mining moving to this continent, and I don't, you know, I don't really know. But is that just kind of like patriotic Americans and Canadians wanting to see more mining here, or are there tangible benefits to having more mining in North America? Oh, absolutely. I think there certainly are a lot more um, benefits, right? Well, first of all, it is, is very much real and the data stands behind it. And it's that much more multiplied now that China has shut off a lot of their operations, right? China has been anywhere from 50 to 70% of the global mining network uh, for the past few years. And when you lose 90% of that capacity in the last few months, the other percentages and the other distribution network across the network grows. Uh, so right now we're looking at anywhere from 25 to 30% of the entire network being in North America. Mm-hmm. That's both U.S. and Canada, right? I talked before about the differences between China and the U.S. as far as from a building side, um, when they can source cheaper uh, electrical equipment and they can build on shorter timeframes because it's not as stringent from the permitting and regulatory side. But the one advantage that U.S. has is the capital markets. And we've seen that play out in the last half year or so, right? When Bitcoin went on its run, some of the biggest winners in the space has been the publicly listed companies. 
So the capital markets is the one big advantage and, uh, that can really accelerate the growth and the amount of capital you have at your disposal to build large-scale mining operations. And many of those have already come online and they continue to grow and expand. Where it gets really ironic and interesting is we talked about previously, oh, China, uh, they have so, it's so centralized there. They made 51% of the network. The government takes over this or that. Well, we're actually going to be trending to the point where the U.S. or North America may be too much of uh, the global hash rate. But where I have confidence that, uh, that that scenario will play out is obviously the U.S. and the West for a large part is a lot more democratic. The government's not going to step in and just kind of seize all your equipment. Not completely, right? Uh, but ultimately, it's uh, a lot of the regu- regulations that come at the federal level is very mixed and is not consistent across the states. So what you're see a lot more regulations on the local jurisdictions at the state level, right? Where it's very different from China, where essentially the state uh, or the, their national or state or federal level, right? Uh, whatever they say goes, right? So even though certain provinces wanted to keep mining, like the Yunnan's or Sichuan's that held off a little longer, they were ultimately, uh, their hands were forced and they had to shut off mining, even though they were previously compliant. Here in the U.S., it's a lot more up to the local jurisdictions. Um, you have some states that are a lot more friendlier to miners, like the Kentuckys, the Texases, the Georgias of the world, um, or of, of the U.S. And then you have other states that have issued moratoriums or actively trying to uh, stop Bitcoin mining, right? You have uh, moratoriums in Chilean County uh, over in Washington and Plattsburgh, New York. And we saw that the recent bill proposed up in the state of New York um, that was uh, clearly targeting specific Bitcoin miners. So that's a long-winded way of saying certainly hash rate is growing in the U.S. almost too fast. And it's great to see being a company that is based here. But we'd also like to see growth not only in the U.S. and North America, but all over the world. One thing that I found interesting was your previous firm, Greenridge, used a behind-the-meter system. Um, can you explain what that is and why it is that that was beneficial for your company? Yeah, so behind-the-meter is a fancy way of saying like you generate your own power, right? Uh, it's power that you're not pulling from the grid. And ultimately, what that means is you're going to be extremely cost-efficient. So long-term, I think more and more of the Bitcoin miners that are going to be entering the ecosystem are these um, large energy companies and power generation assets, right? Uh, Greenwich, prior to instituting Bitcoin mining, was a struggling peaking plant, right? Um, It was on the verge of shutting down and a lot of jobs and taxes would have been lost. But because they implemented Bitcoin mining, the grid previously was not giving them a sustainable enough business model to be a peaker plant, right? So we talked about how say New York or New York City struggled with electrical stability, and everyone takes for granted that the power just isn't readily available, but it's not. Like these peaker plants need to be incentivized uh, to stay there to provide stability to the grid, right? And um, the market economics as they were weren't, weren't conducive to that. So Bitcoin mining allowed Greenwich to run base loaded, and they can ramp on much quicker now that they have uh, the power plant constantly running to provide stability to the grid. But anyways, I kind of went on a tangent there, but. Um, Behind the meter, once again, is you gener- you're using the own power that you're generating, right? And you're no longer paying a lot of the same transmission and distribution costs that your competitors are. And that's why I think uh, over time, as there's more clarity and as there's more data that backs just how uh, environmentally friendly uh, and quote-unquote green Bitcoin actually is, more of these players are going to enter into the ecosystem. And the people that move first, they're going to have an advantage because they're going to have the know-how, the capital built out. And once again, we talked about timing, right? They're going to be first movers. 
And Greenwich is certainly one of them. And um, we've mentioned this a few times, but haven't really discussed it in depth. So as we know, in El Salvador, they're looking into volcano mining. Is that going to be a real thing? What do you think is the plausibility of that? If it's not a real thing, we're going to make it a real thing, right? <laughs> Jokes aside, um, geothermal technology for Bitcoin mining has been happening for a long time, right? Iceland has been mining off of quote-unquote volcano power for quite some time now. Um, so I think the... Uh, the challenges that they face is obviously going to be, uh, once again, how do you mine in a hotter and a more humid climate? But the technologies are there, right? Immersion is not like, uh, it's not some new foreign technology that hasn't uh, been used before. It just hasn't been built largely at scale at cheap enough cost. But now that we're seeing a lot of miners being displaced, the economic incentive is there to solve that equation. Uh, there is going to be new um, hurdles and bottlenecks with like, how do you source and get miners over from China to South America? What is the regulatory framework going to look like, right? Is it going to always be this stable? So that's one of the risks you look at and evaluate when you enter into a new jurisdiction and region. Uh, can they bridge the cultural language barriers uh, for miners coming out of China, right? And I think these are all problems that will get solved, right? Um, the president uh, is obviously very Bitcoin friendly. It's, uh, it's pushing it very hard and we love seeing that. Uh, a, lot, a lot of it is one of those things where only time will tell. Right. It's one thing to be all uh, have massive buying in crypto and Bitcoin when Bitcoin's pushing all time highs and it's in a bull market. But is your operation or are you be as interested uh, when the market's in a very down cycle? Right. Which is when you actually should be building and investing more capital. So uh, time will tell. So amidst all of these changes, there's also been this new Bitcoin Mining Council. Uh, tell us what you think the significance that will have for the industry. Yeah, so I talked earlier about uh, the importance of using real data and facts to combat these narratives that are hurting uh, the reputation of Bitcoin, right? And the big one they're combating is a lot of the concerns around climate and ESGs, right? Uh, so they, I think, believe yesterday, uh, this is Thursday, Thursday night, uh, they had uh, a meeting where they issued uh, and they released data and reports that show that Bitcoin, once again, is over, I think it's 53% uh, carbon uh, or emissions free. Uh, so once again, the data is on our side, right? So it's important. To, uh, it's awesome to see that these miners have banded together, right, uh, to collect data and hard facts to kind of combat these narratives. And I think over time, as Bitcoin gets more credibility and maturity, it'll, it'll largely be on the back of these miners being more transparent and disclosing more data. So another thing that people have talked about for a while is the financialization of Bitcoin mining. What does that mean exactly? And what new developments are you seeing on that front? Yeah, that's a great topic. Um, so this has been, been a, a tricky puzzle that a lot of people have been trying to solve for some time, right? Financialization of Bitcoin products is another way of saying, how do we make sure that miners can actually hedge their profitability, right? Right now, let's take Greenwich as an example or any other data center that's out there. It's very easy to actually hedge your energy costs or your input costs on the electrical side. Either you're locking in your energy rates uh, on long PPAs or you're purchasing your energy source um, hedged out for a long period of time. So you can lock in your input costs, but your output costs are where you're exposed, right? Or your output um, variables are where you're exposed. Bitcoin mining, we talked about it all this entire call. There's many variables going to it, right? It's not just Bitcoin price. It's also what's the difficulty in the network hash rate? Where's that at? So oftentimes people say, well, why don't you just lock in a Bitcoin price? Well, 
a Bitcoin could be more expensive or less expensive to purchase based off of what the network and the hash rate is doing. Like just uh, tonight, we're going to see that it's going to be 38% quote unquote cheaper to mine a Bitcoin when a difficulty readjusts. Difficulty's dropping 28%, but your revenue goes up 38, right? Um, so being able to find uh, a product in a market uh, for these miners is very, very powerful. The tricky side of it uh, and why it hasn't been proven at scale is that who are the buyers, right? Even though there's obviously a demand from the sellers, the Bitcoin miners, there largely hasn't been a business case or use case for the buyers of these products. And once again, I think it all circles back into the credibility and maturity of Bitcoin, right? Obviously, if, if the markets were efficient, there would be buyers here because miners are able to produce Bitcoin at such a steep discount. Uh, so how can we actually close this loop and actually make an efficient market where people are, are there's interest in buying these products? So that's kind of one thing that a lot of different people have been trying to solve over the years. Uh, some of it has been in hash rate contracts, this and that, but oftentimes the buyer gets burned. Either they're buying it at too steep of prices or they're demanding very, very large discounts. So that's one thing that we're keeping a very close eye on uh, is the financialization of uh, hash rate products. All right. And so why don't we wrap with um, kind of what your predictions are for what will happen to Bitcoin mining by the end of the year? What will what will it look like in the second half of 2021? <laughs> Man, putting me on the spot. Uh, so I think I, I was a little overly eager and already shared several predictions, right? So I think immersion technology will be more prevalent. I think we'll see more projects announced where there'll be immersion deployments at scale. I also think that global hash rate will struggle to get back to its all-time highs early of this year, largely because there's such long lead times for miners to come back online, especially when it comes to building new capacity and new infrastructure. Uh, so I think we're going to not see those all-time highs on the difficulty in the hash rate side. I also see that over time, uh, I'm not sure if it's by the end of this year or not, uh, you'll see more countries embracing Bitcoin mining and more jurisdictions openly welcoming Bitcoin miners because as there's more data and there's more facts being shared and there's more transparency from groups like our group, the Foundry, the Mining Council, and other market participants, the business case is going to be undeniable for Bitcoin mining. All right. And what about the future for Foundry? Oh, future for Foundry. So um, that's a good question. Uh, we're so busy working every day. Like, hard to think about the future. <laughs> um, so uh, here we offer several different services on the mining side. Right? We, we've been a very large financier of mining equipment. Uh, I talked before how one of our mandates is breaking up the narrative that China or Bitcoin is very centralized. Right, And in doing so, we actually financed over 50% of all the latest generation equipment that came into North America back in 2020. So a large majority of the S19s and M30Ss were financed by Foundry. We also have deployed our mining equipment at many different sites all across North America, and we're branching out to other parts of the world to help them get speed and leverage our expertise. And that's also through our advisory business, right? So we also offer advisory uh, for miners that are new to the space, um, publicly traded companies, uh, large firms that know that there are financial incentives here, but they don't have expertise and experience to execute, uh, as well as helping Chinese miners move out of uh, China, uh, because now they're not displaced, right? Where can they actually plug in the miners? What operators and builders are actually credible for them to work with and, and lock in the contracts even before the sites are built? 
And uh, lastly, certainly not least, least is our mining pool, right? Uh, part of the decentralization effort that we've been uh, very, very large proponents of has been our mining pool, right? Our mining pool is called Foundry USA Pool to really emphasize, even its namesake, that we are a U.S.-based, uh, fully compliant mining pool, right? Uh, we're leveraging, once again, our balance sheet and capital. Uh, when times were tough, that's when we started building because we knew no one else uh, had the capabilities of doing so. So having alternatives outside China, even ready beforehand and in place, uh, was one of the smartest moves we could have made and we continue to do so to help decentralize the network. Great. And where can people learn more about you and Foundry? Yeah, so you can visit our website at foundrydigital.com. Uh, you also check me out on Twitter. Uh, I, I guess I'm a little bit more active than I used to be. Uh, I had a lot of peer pressure from some of my close friends and colleagues in the space. Uh, so you can find me at Sino Crypto on Twitter. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on Unchained. Awesome. Thanks for having me, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Kevin and Foundry, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Mark Murdoch. Thanks for listening.